Good morning. You guys sounded great this morning. Great songs. Hope everyone had a good week. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, and plan is to go to the very verse, first verse of chapter 5, which I feel like is really kind of with this same section. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 1. Also happy spring forward day, the day that everyone hates. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this time that we have together to worship you. May it be a time that is set apart and holy, Lord, that we dedicate to you. Lord, may we be pointed to your truth and to the gospel. Lord, we want to continue to pray for Janet Wolverton and her family, Lord, on the loss of her mother a couple weeks ago, Lord, and we continue to pray for them as they grieve. Lord, we come alongside them in this time of mourning, Lord, and I know Janet appreciates so much people praying and being concerned for her and her family. Lord, we continue to lift them up. Lord, we pray for this message, and again, Lord, that we be pointed to truth. Lord, that it be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2018, a prisoner in Louisiana named Johnny Trawick was told by a judge that he had served his time and would be released. In most states, when a prisoner is marked for release, they're freed within hours. And so Johnny gave away the things that he wouldn't need anymore once he left prison. And he waited to be set free. And he waited. And he waited. 19 days before he was actually released. And others in Louisiana have had to wait much longer. In 2019, the average wait time for release for a prisoner in Louisiana who should have been freed was 44 days overdue. People who should be free remaining in prison. Within the Galatian churches, you had people who had heard and believed in the gospel message. They too should have been joined the life and freedom which are found in Christ, 
but found themselves imprisoned under the law of the Old Testament. Because as we've discussed throughout our study of Galatians, there were people who wanted to continue imposing the Old Testament law onto the gospel. And throughout our studies in this book, we've seen Paul make various arguments from the Old Testament about the ineffectiveness of the law to save. Throughout Paul's argument, he's given different explanations for why we cannot follow the law, even if we want to. Paul has pointed to God's covenant with Abraham, and where Abraham was justified by God by faith. How the law was given as a guardian until Christ came. In today's passage, Paul will again point to the Old Testament, and he will again point to the life of Abraham and to his family to make a theological point. And throughout this passage, Paul will keep showing this back and forth between the slavery that trying to live up to God and follow his law brings, contrasted with the freedom that is a result of faith in the gospel and which is found in Christ. And with that, we'll come to our passage this morning. The main idea of our passage is that trying to earn what God freely gives brings slavery. And we'll look at that passage in three parts. Promise and works, heaven and earth, freedom and slavery. With that, let's come to our passage. First point, promise and works. Looking at verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And this question at the beginning of the passage will really govern everything that follows in this section. Paul is talking to people who want to try to rely on the law for the basis of their salvation. And he will be making the point that they don't truly understand the law because if they did, they would see the impossibility of living up to that standard and why they need grace. But for so much of humanity, we want to try to go our own way to think that we can be good enough. And so Paul begins to illustrate his point that we can't do it on our own. And to make his point, he'll look at the two sons of Abraham, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Abraham matters so much because it was Abraham whom the Lord had called, and it was to Abraham through whom the Lord had made his promise. And as a little bit of background, as a reminder, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promises Abraham land, being a great nation, and blessing. And Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham was 75 years old at the time. And that'll be relevant in a moment. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and his wife Sarah have never had a child. Chapter 15, verses 2 and 3 Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In Genesis 15, verse 4, the Lord makes the specific promise that Abraham will have his own heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And so the Lord promises Abraham a son. 
Now, if you're a Christian, you have God's promises. But if we're being honest, there can be times where they seem so far off and distant from us. We have the promise of heaven, but we're still living in a fallen world. We have the promise that Jesus will one day wipe away every tear, but there's still so much sadness. We have the promise that the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us, but there are times when we can still feel so alone. We have the promise that God hears all of our prayers, but there are times when it feels like they're not even getting out of the room. We have the promise of God's unfailing love for us, but can have times where we question his goodness when we're going through struggles. Jesus promises to give rest, but we so often feel restless. Jesus has promised he'll return, but there are times when that can feel so far off. We have God's promises, and the Lord is faithful to his promises. We have the end of the story, but there can be times where it's hard to believe because we're living in the middle of the story. Abraham had some pretty amazing promises from the Lord, too. We see the end of his story. We can see the realization of his promises. But for Abraham, when he was in the middle of it, those promises could seem far off and distant. In Genesis chapter 5, verses, I'm sorry, 15, verses 5 and 6, we see the Lord make an incredible promise to Abraham. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And really, that's the high point of the entire Old Testament outside of creation. The Lord promises offspring, Abraham believes, and the Lord counts that belief as his righteousness. And it is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the basis for our righteousness, knowing that we have a Savior who took the penalty of our sins for us. Abraham believed the Lord's promises too. And so after all of that, after all of that waiting, after all of these promises, you would think that a baby would be right around the corner, right? Wrong. Because several more years come and go. And there's still no baby. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham's wife, Sarah, had had enough. Sarah gives her servant named Hagar to Abraham to see if she can have a baby with him. Now, to us and to our sensibilities, that's not something we would do. This looks to have been a somewhat accepted practice, at least in some societies in the ancient world, where if the wife couldn't have a baby to see if the husband could conceive a child with another woman. The plan works. Hagar gets pregnant. Abraham gets his son. But it's not the son. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. He's a son... But he's not the son. He's not the promised son. God is going to give Abraham and Sarah a son. And the Lord will specifically tell them that in Genesis 17. And all of this illustrates Paul's point. They had the promise of blessing. But Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands with Hagar. They had waited a long time. 
but ultimately they hadn't trusted in the Lord's timing. And my point really isn't to beat them up, but my point is that Paul's point is that they resorted to human works and endeavors to do what only God could do. God had promised a son to Abraham, and it was going to happen on God's terms and in God's timing. That's what Paul means when he's talking about according to the flesh versus through the promise. For Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah, the work of the flesh was turning to a different woman to try to have a baby. The work of the promise was God supernaturally blessing Abraham and Sarah in their old age with a son. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. And that might sound unbelievable to some that a 90-year-old woman could have a baby. But the same God who can create life in a dead womb can give life to people who were dead in their sins. God would give Abraham and Sarah the promised son. And in giving them this son, when they were so old, God was showing that this child was born not in an ordinary way, but through God's providence and because of God's promise. And God would give another son for all of humanity and for our salvation. But we have a whole world of people who don't want that son. They want to rely on themselves, on what they can do. They don't want to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They want to believe in themselves. They don't want the Spirit, but want to trust in the works of the flesh. They don't want to trust in grace. They want to rely on the law. Abraham and Sarah could not bring about their own promised son in the way they wanted. And we cannot bring about our own salvation in any way we want or any way we choose. We come to our second point, heaven and earth, verses 24 and 25. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul is continuing to talk about the two mothers the two women with whom Abraham had these sons. And Paul gives an allegorical interpretation to the theological meaning of the sons that each of them bore. By the way, an allegory is a story which symbolically points to truths beyond the story. It's like how the Chronicles of Narnia are an allegory for the Christian faith. Aslan is an allegorical representation of Christ as he dies and is risen and ultimately is the one who defeats the witch and provides security in Narnia. It's a picture of the gospel. It's an allegory. Hagar and Sarah's saga is also an allegory. They represent two covenants. They represent the covenant with Moses and the new covenant ushered in by Christ. Paul equates Hagar with the Old Covenant, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, and slavery all together. And if you had been a first century reader of Galatians or a person with a Jewish background, that would have been a radical statement to have basically lumped all those things in together under the banner of calling it slavery. For instance, 
he compares the slave woman, Hagar, to Mount Sinai. Sinai is the place where the Lord had made his covenant with the Israelites during their desert wanderings. It was the place where the Ten Commandments had been given to Moses. They came to Mount Sinai after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. And so a person could reasonably question that Paul is going to say that Hagar and what she represents is an allegory for slavery? Yes. And I know it's a complicated idea, but it's because Hagar and the son she bore are examples of humanity trying to bring about God's promises and blessing by their own action. Mount Sinai points to the Old Testament law where people tried to earn God's forgiveness and favor by virtue of their own merit and adherence to the law. Now, in Galatia and in the church today, when we want to trust in our works ahead of God's promises, we fall into the same trap. Trying to earn what God freely gives brings slavery. And so Hagar and her son are allegorical symbols for slavery and a bygone covenant that the Lord had made with Moses at Mount Sinai. Sarah and the son she bore, the promised son, is symbolic of the ultimate hope and victory which are found in the Lord. Now, remember those covenant promises that the Lord had given to Abraham. Land, blessing, and ultimately, in chapter 15, he would promise offspring. In the Old Testament, that was looked at as Jerusalem is the land, the Israelites are the people of God, Isaac is the promised son, and the blessing is being God's chosen people. And all of that was true. But all of that points from good to the better in the New Testament in light of the gospel. Land, offspring, and blessing. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. There you have land. Paul has compared the earthly Jerusalem with the law and slavery. But here, Paul talks about the Jerusalem above. He's using heavenly language, and this Jerusalem is free. Similar language will also be used in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation in describing a new Jerusalem. Reading from Revelation 21, 2-4. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The heavenly Jerusalem is depicted as a great city. No sickness or disease, no sin. A perfect place because it's in the presence of God. Abraham was promised land. The Jerusalem above is the true promised land. It's a land that humanity cannot conquer or lay claim to. It's a destination that we can't buy a ticket to, that we can't have a passport for. It's a place that we can't get to by our own efforts. But it's a place that Jesus has prepared for us and that he invites us to. 
And there is no law you can follow that will make you deserving of that place because trying to earn what God freely gives brings slavery. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus graciously forgives us when we come to faith in him. And he reserves this Jerusalem above for the people who walk in faith and trust in him. Verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 54. It's a striking statement. Rejoice, O barren one. It's striking because that's totally counterintuitive. Why would someone rejoice in their barrenness? In the book of Isaiah, it is making a future promise to Israel who is symbolized with the barren woman. It gives an ultimate hope that though she is barren, she will have many children, which is a picture of future glory. And in the new covenant, Christ has come. For Sarah, the first barren woman, she had a promised child because the Lord had miraculously intervened. There was sorrow in the waiting, but there was ultimately rejoicing as the Lord had intervened. But through the gospel, there is an even greater multitude of children. In the spiritual sense, sons and daughters all throughout the world, born from the line of this barren woman because of the ultimate victory of the Lord over sin and the spread of the gospel throughout the world by which people of all nations come to faith in the good news of the gospel, land, offspring, and blessing. New Jerusalem is the land. The offspring is Christ and his church. And the blessing is people who are dead finding life and spiritual blessings in Christ. And that's why in verse 28, Paul says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, that all who trust in the gospel are sons and daughters of God's promise. But there are a lot of people who can look to Abraham as being their spiritual father. But what matters is who is your mother? Is it Hagar or Sarah? Is it the law or the promise? Is it the flesh or the spirit? If it's the law, you'll be a slave to trying to earn God. But Jesus freely gives freedom. We come to our third point. Freedom and slavery, verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul actually takes us back to Genesis and the two sons. In Genesis chapter 21, due to his treatment of his younger brother Isaac, Sarah demands that Abraham expel Hagar and the son Ishmael. He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul is saying that the same thing is happening in the Galatian church, that you have people who are the descendants spiritually of Hagar and Ishmael, they're intellectual descendants, people who are walking in their way, who are persecuting the descendants of Sarah and Isaac. You have people who want to impose the law on the Spirit. Who want to impose the law on grace? Who want to impose the law on the promise? Now, when Paul refers to it as persecution, it's not necessarily the violent persecution that the early church would later face, but it's rather social pressure 
and ostracism on people who were seeking to preach, teach, and believe in a gospel of grace. The New Testament does have warnings about persecution. Jesus warns the disciples. Paul, who wrote Galatians, had himself been a persecutor of the church before later becoming a martyr for the church. And it's still a reality today in the world, as it's been throughout the history of the church. And when we think of persecution, I think our focus within the church goes either to other religious groups persecuting Christians, or to a totalitarian government oppressing Christians for their faith in the gospel. And those are real threats in much of the world even today. But that's not really what Paul's talking about in this specific instance. He's talking about persecution from within the church. In the Galatian situation, you had the Judaizers who were preaching a false gospel of works and trying to influence these churches in a way which undermined the gospel. And there have been other examples throughout the history of the church of Christian groups, or at least groups who claim the banner of Christ, coming to blows. In Europe, you had wars between Catholics and Protestants. You've had skirmishes that really have continued even into the modern day in certain parts of the world between these groups. Carrie's mom is really, really big into genealogy. I have a 10th or 11th great-grandfather way back in the 1500s who actually was martyred in an event in France called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre where basically it was a Catholic crackdown on French Protestants. During the Protestant Reformation, you had the rise of the Baptist movement who favored believers' baptism. In persecution, there were instances during the Reformation where Baptists were actually drowned for having that belief. In its own perverse and twisted way, drowning was seen as an ironic form of persecution for people who favored believers' baptism. And there are sadly many other examples throughout the history of the church to which we could look. In Galatia, the gospel itself was under attack. Again, it might not have been a threat to life and limb, but it was a threat to the truth. And that's a problem that we continue to see in so many churches throughout America and throughout the rest of the world who are not preaching the gospel. It might not be the same specific issue that we see in Galatia, where it's trying to impose the Old Testament, but other ways where people want to elevate something that is not the gospel as if it is the gospel. You have some churches who have gone off the rails theologically. They've thrown out the Bible. They want to reduce it just to some nice teachings and some good ideas, but don't have any reverence for it as the word of God. They reject the exclusivity of Christ and want to appeal to a more universalistic message. But it's not just those churches who have drifted. You have churches who want to emphasize a social gospel over Christ crucified. You have churches who want to preach a political gospel. You have churches who want to preach a health and wealth gospel. You have churches who want to be your life coach over preaching the gospel. And yes, you have churches who want to resort to workspace righteousness and not preach a gospel of grace. 
I'm not saying that none of the people who go to those churches are Christians. People can believe in a gospel within a church that isn't truly preaching the gospel, but that doesn't mean that within the church we should be tolerant of those who seek to undermine the gospel by distorting it or adding to it. And as I said, it's a conflict that has existed within the church throughout the history of the church and will continue until Christ returns. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. We see the seriousness with which Paul wants to deal with false teaching. A cynical person might ask, was that loving? Love cannot come at the expense of truth. And when the gospel in a church is being undermined, a church can have no tolerance for that. In Galatians, you're seeing what can come of giving quarter to false teachers. You have a church that's been led astray. Verse 31 into chapter 5, verse 1. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. At the end of the passage, Paul reminds the Galatians who they are. Again, this is a challenging passage. It's, it's really one of the high points theologically in the book of Galatians. There are a lot of major ideas that Paul is talking about in these verses. But if you read and reread through this passage a few times, and I would encourage you to do You've already lost one hour. Today's a wash already. So this afternoon, if you read through this passage a few times, you'll notice that everything Paul is saying in this passage keeps going back and forth between this dualism of freedom and slavery. Freedom is through the promised son. Slavery comes from the works of the flesh. Freedom is grace. Slavery is from the law. There is a slavery which comes from trying to earn God. But for Christians, we can live in the joy of knowing that Christ has brought freedom. I'll close with this. I, I can't help but think of all the churches that have fallen into similar traps of these Galatian infiltrators who want to add law and external requirements onto the gospel, who lose sight of the fact that we are saved by grace alone, who want to act as though God needs our help in saving us, who basically want to say, Jesus and. While it's true that God does have things he wills for us to do, those things will not save you. If they could, then you wouldn't need Jesus. If you could save yourself without Jesus, then Jesus died for no reason. So then, how do we approach the things that God has commanded for us to do? We do them, or we should do them. But the difference between law and grace is the motivation for why we do them. If it's law, you think that you do them because you have to do them so that God will love you. If you understand grace, you understand that you should follow God's will because you know that God loves you. I've probably used this example before, but I think of my son, Robbie. There's nothing he could do that would make me love him any less. But there are things I want him to do. Why do I want him to do those things? It's for his own good. 
It's because it's what's best for him. When he wants to put something in his mouth that will surely kill him if he were to swallow it, I don't want him to do that because I know what would be better for him. And if you believe in a God who is all loving, all good, all knowing, and he commands something through his word, it's because it's ultimately what's best for us. Growing up, I know my parents loved me no matter what. That didn't mean that I wanted to respond to that love by being as bad as I possibly could because they'd love me anyway. So the motivation to follow God is a love for God and a desire to live for him, to honor him, and to live according to his truth with the faith that that is the best way to live. Not so God can love you, not so God has the ability to forgive you. God doesn't need your help to save you. There is no rule we can add on to the gospel that will help save us. And in churches who wish to start mingling law and gospel together, it never stops at just one thing. Because trying to earn what God freely gives brings slavery. And you get a church that is not living in the enjoyment of the grace of a loving God, but living in the fear of angering God and feeling like every time you mess up, you just made him matter and matter. In Galatia, one of the first things Paul talked about in this book is how they had wanted to impose the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. But it didn't stop there, because then you find out that they also wanted to impose circumcision. And then they wanted to impose the holy days of the Old Testament. And little by little, it becomes a whole system that is rooted in what we do and is not rooted in what Christ has done. Trying to earn what God freely gives brings slavery. But for freedom, Christ has set us free. And so we should walk in that and knowing there is freedom through grace and freedom from the, in the gospel and rejoice in a loving Savior who has forgiven us and walking with him in relationship, living for him to his glory. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it is so hard for us not to default back to being earners, earners by nature, Lord. We have a, a debt of sin that we can never begin to repay. We don't need to do that. Lord, we thank you that we have a loving Savior who has come into the world, who lived a perfect life, who he followed the law and did it perfectly, so that all who believe in him and trust in him can receive grace and be forgiven. Lord, let us not water down what we believe because we know the gospel, but let us have a greater appreciation for the cost of our sin, for the great Savior who invites us into life. Let us live as people, Lord, who have seen your faithfulness throughout time, who have seen your faithfulness throughout the scripture, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of this church, throughout the history of our lives, and continue to know and to have hope that you are a faithful and loving God. And that all the things that you have promised in your word, Lord, you are bringing to completion in your world. That though it has fallen, Lord, you are perfecting your creation. Lord, though we are in a sinful world today, that there is a Jerusalem above. Lord, may we trust in that and find joy in that. In Jesus' name, amen.